Okay, today's topic is wine and alcohol, and we're going to start with wine. Now, there's a, a very a unique halacha that applies to grape juice and wine um, called Stam Yayin. Um, we're going to be talking a bit about that, <clears throat> and I'm just going to keep using the word wine, but everything I'm going to say applies equally to grape juice also. I'm just going to use the word wine. Anyhow, the basics of that din is that if you have wine that's touched or moved by someone who's not Jewish, um, then the wine becomes usher. Excuse me, for that reason, wine or wine vinegar or anything made with wine without hashkacha is not kosher. And the assumption is that it is stamyayin, that it was touched or moved by someone um, um, who would make it usher. Now, one important exception to that din is that if the wine becomes a bushel, then it can't become usher. I'll explain to you what means in a second, but before that, I just want to mention that if it was <coughs> became stamyayin, before it was mavushal, then it stays usher forever. It doesn't help to make it mavushal afterwards. Okay, so anyhow, so what does mavushal mean? Mavushal means it's cooked. That literally, that's what the word means. And the Paiskim have different opinions of what it means to make it to qualify for that. Meaning, if the wine is cooked something, somehow it meets this standard called mavushal, then that now it can no longer become samyayin in the future. Now, um, one question about what is required to make mavushal. There's a couple of questions I'm going to talk about. One is what temperature it has to reach to be considered mavushal cooked. Um, and that, <coughs> excuse me, the reason for that question is like this. Because earlier price can be used two different ways to define mavushal. One is they say is when the wine gets to be yatsalet despite. That sounds like a temperature. And they also say is when there's the wine is yismayat mimidasay, means some, there's some, the juice diminishes a little bit because vapor is escaping from it. So, you know, when you heat something up, the vapor starts just uh, coming off of it, and you have less of it. So, <clears throat> in Ramosha, Frankie and Old, that those are the same. <clears throat> and that when it's Yatzle display, it will also be Yismat Mimidasai, just two different ways of describing the same thing. So, he says when you heat the, the wine up to 175 degrees, which is what he, we consider Yatzle display, in this case, it's a Homer to say a hard temperature, then it's considered a bushel, and the juice is, is, cannot become Stamyayin afterwards. In contrast to that, um, in Dain Wise and Ravazner say that this shear of Yismite Mimidasai potentially is higher than Yatzel at this point, and therefore say that uh, the wine is not Mavushal until it reaches a higher temperature. There's different opinions what that higher temperature should be. Some say 190, 194, maybe even 212. So that, that's our first question about what it takes to make wine be Mavushal is how hot does it have to become to be considered Mavushal? Okay. Uh, second issue is... Um, can you perform this process of becoming a bushel <coughs> through pasteurization? Okay, pasteurization is what we do is we, <coughs> excuse me, it's a way to heat uh, liquids, but other things also, but a lot of it's used for liquids. You heat the liquid up to a certain temperature, it kills any pathogens, and this way it keeps the food from spoiling. Now, so that sounds like a great way to make a bushel. Just heat it, make the pasteurization to the right temperature, and it'll be a bushel. Now, most American hashkachas uh, allow this, and they say you can do it through that, no problem, um, because it hits the right temperature. Whatever your number you thought was, that's what it is, and that's good enough. But some of the Israeli place can, did not allow this for a couple of reasons. One is <clears throat> that a pasteurizer is a closed system, meaning the, the, the cooking happens within a machine, which we call a pasteurizer or a heat exchanger, and the vapor, no vapors escape from it. So if we were looking to have Yismat Mimidasai, Seems like we're missing that because no vapors are going to escape. They're going to stay in the system. Second is, um, there's uh, if you cook wine in a pot, 
then it ruins the taste of it, and that potentially plays a role in why Mavoshal can't become Usr, but uh, in an unpasteurizer, it's done in such a controlled way that presumably there's no change in taste, it doesn't, af- doesn't degrade the taste at all. And a third reason why some people don't allow for hold that pasteurization is not good enough to make it mavushal, is because <clears throat> they hold that in order to be mavushal, it has to be something unusual. It has to be something was done to it, <clears throat> like cooking, which would be unusual. Uh, and in this case, since pasteurization is so common, it might not qualify as, as unusual. Now, I'm not going to explain you know, the, the back and forth about why people disagree, uh, but those are some of the points of those who argue on it. Um, so some Israeli hechsherim um, will not allow pasteurization to serve as mavushal, and some have like a compromise where they'll write on the bottle mavushal like they pistor, mean it became mavushal through pasteurization, and sort of you figure out yourself whether you think that that's good enough um, to be to make it considered um, mavushal. So we've spoken at two different issues so far about what it takes to make wine or grape juice be mavushal. One last thing is <clears throat> is that Ramosha says that it's possible to make wine <coughs> be mavushal even before the juice was squeezed out of the grape, uh, which means, which is to say is, that the rule is, when you squeeze a grape, and you make grape juice, and eventually it becomes wine, it can't become stamyain until a, pro, a step happens that's called hamshacha, until the juice separates from the rest of the fruit. So, um, when that, if let's say that happens at 10 o'clock in the morning, so at 9, at nine o'clock, it couldn't have become wine, because it was, wasn't yet juice yet. Well, if we could be mavashal at 9 o'clock before that happened, then we have a way of <clears throat> of making it mavashal and protecting it from becoming stanyayin, and we, we're doing that protection before it's even possible to become stanyayin. So it makes the job of the mashkiach so much easier because now he, he has to make sure it happens. <clears throat> You'll have to watch it. But he has no there's no time when his juice was possible to become stanyayin that he would have that it and that he'd have to watch to make sure that it didn't because he was Mavashal before it could have ever become Stamyayan. Um so according to that opinion, uh, it's a really um big advantage for the Mashkir. Makes things much easier. Now the, the wine that's Mavushal <coughs> has big advantages over wine that's not Mavushal because it won't become usher if excuse me, it was touched the move by someone who's not Jewish, such as a waiter in a restaurant or a cleaning person in the house. Um, on the other hand, there are two reasons why a company might not want to make the wine mavushal. <clears throat> First of all, the opposite of what I said beforehand, some companies are concerned that making it mavushal will ruin the taste. I know I said beforehand that it doesn't ruin the taste, um, but some actually, some winemakers think just the opposite, that it does ruin the taste. <clears throat> second is, um, if you don't make the wine mavushal, then there are consumers, we'll talk about in a second, who prefer non-mavushal wine for Kiddush, and therefore, they want to make the, they don't want to make their wine mavushal because they want to help those consumers who would prefer non mavushal wine. Now, just worth noting that um, wine that's some wine that's or well, grape juice that's not mavushal is sort of in an in between step. It is actually pasteurized to a temperature which is borderline yatalezisbite. <clears throat> so, if you think you can get a preference by drink, using this wine for Kiddush because it's not Mavushal, it's not so clear that you're getting that because, in fact, um, Lechomro, it actually might be considered Mavushal. Uh, again, it's borderline of Yatzalaz by temperature. So they could write on it, not Mavushal, meaning it didn't meet our standard of Mavushal, but that doesn't yet mean that it actually meets the standard of not Mavushal. Okay, now let's move on to some <coughs> four, sec- four secondary halachas 
that relate to wine and grape juice. The first is about the bracha. Uh, if grape juice or wine, for that matter, it is pure, I mean nothing else added into it, then the bracha is bar perikafin. And as, if you dilute it with water, as long as there's at least one part grape juice for about every six parts of water, I mean it's about 14% juice, then the bracha stays bar perikafin. So you've watered down your grape juice or your wine a lot, it still stays with bar perikafin. But if there's too much water, <coughs> the bracha becomes shahakal. Now, that's all true if we started with pure grape juice or pure wine. If the manufacturer added all ingredients, then you would have to know how much was added before you could figure out how much water you could add uh, and still keep the bracha. Okay? The, obviously, that's going to depend on the product. So you'd have to know from the manufacturer or from hashkocha to know um, exactly what's going on. And the second thing is Shalom um, Shaman Arbach said that um, if you have grape juice that's reconstituted from grape juice concentrate, in other words, you didn't just squeeze grapes and put them into the bottle. You took grapes, you made grape juice, you concentrated. I mean, basically, you boiled the water out of it to make this thick, like, syrup that's concentrated grape juice. And then you reconstituted, you added water back into it <clears throat> to, before you put it into the bottle. He says you cannot use that for Kiddush. And he says, seemingly, the bracha on it also was not very pregoff and the bracha shahakal. So he held that <clears throat> grape juice from concentrate is not the same as regular, regular juice that was never concentrated. In contrast to that, Rebelsky said that no, the bracha is by Perikdafen, and you can use it for Kiddush. It's fine. It makes no difference that it was concentrated in the middle. And as sort of like we said beforehand, the American Paiskim and the Hashkachas tend to follow this Rebelsky's position that it's fine for Kiddush and the bracha is by Perikdafen. But in Eric Tisrael, many are Mahmir for Rosham Zalman, and they say they will not make Kiddush on it um, if it was from concentrate. The third halachas. <clears throat> At the Pesach Seder, everyone has to drink four cups of Yayin. Yayin means wine or grape juice. Um, and if everything is equal, <coughs> one, it's preferable to have a red wine instead of a white wine, non-mavoshal wine over a mavoshal one, um, uh, unflavored and, and unsweetened is better than uh, flavored or sweetened. Okay, so those are, those are the general preferences at the Pesach Seder. But those preferences are only when all other factors are equal. If, however, the white wine, for example is of a higher quality or has a better taste than the red wines that are available, then a person should choose the white wine, <coughs> even though it doesn't meet all the other requirements, the other, I'm sorry, preferences that there were. Okay, and last, last is um, that Shulchan brings a halacha, a zechel chorban, that you're not allowed to have music and singers <coughs> at meals, and particularly the way the Ramah says it, meals where wine is being served. Now, there's a lot of different approaches to how to apply this halacha lamaisa to nowadays to whether you can have music playing at a meal. Um, and I'm just going to mention, I'm going to mention the, hash, the policies of three different hashkachas just to show you how varied positions there are that people take on this. Um, you know, I work in hashkachas, so I'm going to mention what hashkachas do. But again, three different, three totally different hashkachas and how they do it. One hashkacha said they have no live, they don't allow any live singers and or live music. And it makes no difference whether there's wine being served or not. Um, they do make an exception if it's a Sudas Mitzvah and if it's Matsuri Shabbos. Like Matsuri Shabbos is like a sort of an automatic Sudas Mitzvah because it's a Malga. Um, then <coughs> they do allow. They, at the same time, they allow recorded music and recorded vocalists, assuming that there's no problems of like Kalisha or other things that are inappropriate about the music. Okay, so they say no live singers and no live music, even if there's no wine. A second Hashkacha said no live music, but only in cases where there's wine being served. But if you have, want to have a live singer, we want to have recorded music, or of, course, or of course a recorded singer, that's fine no matter what. Okay. And a third, Hashgacha said, 
Um, music and singing are always no problem. They're always fine. Um, assuming, but assuming that the words qualify as shiras v'shishpachas, um, and that, that's good enough. But of course, even that's not allowed um, during three weeks and sphere. Okay, so so what I'm saying, you see, you see here, um, you see here these very different approaches to how to deal with this um, on a hashkacha level. But for that matter, it's a personal shaila also, and people are encouraged to ask their, excuse me, their rav or their rav hamachshir how they want this to be handled. Um, because, as I'm mentioning, very different approaches to how to deal with this question of Zechel Chorba not having music at certain meals, particularly those meals that have wine in them. Okay, now let's move on to alcoholic beverages. Hashkacha um, on, I'm sorry, knowing which alcoholic beverages you can drink um, is, has, is complicated by two um, facts that are out there. The first is, in almost every case, there's no legal requirement that the, that it lists the ingredients on the package. So we're already starting at a disadvantage, different than a box of cookies or anything else that we buy, that we don't know what's in it. Uh, we could guess, but we don't really know what's in it. And the second issue that there is is that most alcoholic beverages do not have hashkacha, as opposed to, again, most other things that we eat, that is very, there are many available choices. So these two issues, that we don't know the ingredients, and they're usually not on the hashkacha, make it difficult to know what a person is allowed, which alcoholic beverages are permitted or not. So um, with that in mind, I'm going to talk about the four different potential issues that there are. Um, the idea here is not to talk about individual types of drinks and say, this scotch you could drink or this one you can't, but talk about just the four general issues um, just to make familiarize you so you know what the four possible issues that could be. The first one is ingredients. So the basic recipe for, let's say, bourbon and beer and tequila and many other alcoholic beverages are pretty straightforward. Um, and, and everybody knows that you make them out of which basic ingredients are included in them. However, companies get all types of things into them to try to make you want to buy their product versus the competitors. Like uh, it used to be, the biggest issues that there were were stamyayin, which we talked about beforehand, that they might add wine. That was a common thing that was added. But in more recent years, <clears throat> people have started adding in all types of things. They'll add um, flavor, lactose, that's milk sugar, oysters, clam juice, and who knows what else. I mean, we had one guy added pizza. Okay, so um, so in order to so in order to understand if you can drink a particular beverage, you really need to know what the regulations and the common practices are in an industry. Like, you want to drink sake? You have to know how you make that. And what is scotch? What are the rules there? What are the, what, sorry for what the rules are, what are people actually doing to figure out how much of a concern there is of ingredients being added in um, that are not kosher? Now, our second issue is that even if I know that the, the beverage I'm drinking is fine, there are no added ingredients, no questionable ingredients added to it, but how do I know whether it wasn't produced or distilled on equipment that was used for another beverage that's not as pure as the one that I have. I, the, the beer, let's say the beer that I'm drinking, I know has no additives. However, I know that it has just kosher you know, ingredients. But what about the beer that was made beforehand? And this issue of what was made on the equipment is even more significant when we think about small manufacturers like craft breweries where they'll be making many different products and they make very small batches. Um, so the many products means there's more chance of something going wrong, and small batches means the chances of bittel are less. Less chance that whatever's trafe would in the, any bleas would be bought into, into what I'm drinking. So um, that's a, so our first question was the ingredients themselves, and even if mine doesn't have ingredients, wait a second, but it's made on equipment which was um, used for something that was not kosher. Now, 
<coughs> excuse me, the third issue is um, that <coughs> uh, it's pretty typical that liquor is aged <coughs> for many years in order to help the taste become more mature and developed. Now, aging is inherently okay and it doesn't cause any concerns, but um, a lot of companies have decided that they can make their product better by instead of just aging it in a plain old wooden barrel or in a metal tank, they're going to age it in a in a barrel that had used to hold wine, such as sherry wine or port wine. And of course, as I've been talking, if we don't know anything about it, we assume those are not kosher, those are stamyayin. So here I am putting my product that was made with kosher ingredients <coughs> on kosher kalim, but putting it to age in a barrel, um, which was which is not kosher. Uh, and now, simple reading of the Gemara and the Paiskim is, it does make a difference. The fact that it's in that barrel should not make a difference, and the food is going to be kosher. The, the drink, the, the alcohol will be kosher, even though it was in a trade barrel. But there are some contemporary Paiskim who say that, well, there are different ways to understand those Gemaras and Paiskim that I'm talking about, and maybe it's not so pushed that it's mutter. Plus, they say also the fact that the company specifically wants the wine barrel, and Dafka wants that taste coming out of that barrel in their beverage, maybe that should make a difference to the So that's another question about whether the barrels that it's aged in, we should care whether it's aged in a barrel that's, um, that was used previously for non-kosher wine. And our last question is um, connected to the previous one, and that is because whiskey tends to be aged for a long amount of time, it means is <clears throat> that um, if the owner of the of the distillery is Jewish, that means is he will own that whiskey over Pesach. And, and as, as, in contrast, if I make I don't know uh, seltzer, then I make it and it ships out the door. But if I if I make something that has to be aged for many years, then by nature automatically I'm going to be owning it over a Pesach, which means is that since it's since almost all of these are chametz, um, he has to make mechiras chametz. He has to get rid of it before Pesach, get it out of his possession, and make mechiras chametz before each Pesach. If he does, that's wonderful. If he doesn't, then the whiskey becomes usher as chametz of love Pesach. A year owned it over Pesach, and it becomes, <coughs> excuse me, usher forever as chametz of love Pesach. Now that sounds like a really far-fetched idea. How many places could you think are owned by Yidden who don't Muhammad? Well, it turns out there's all, there are several very prominent whiskey companies who are owned by Jewish people. Um, some of them do, for whatever reason, it's a, there's a lot of Jewish people in this business. Some do mechiros chametz every year, and there's no problem; they take care of it. But others do not. And so now, how do I know what I can eat or not? You'd have to understand the industry to know who has this issue, who doesn't have the issue. <clears throat> um, so this is a fourth issue, is there weren't a problem with ingredients, there weren't a problem with kalim, there weren't a problem with the, the barrels that it was aged in, but it might have been, um, it might have been Chamech of a Pesach, because um, it's definitely been through a Pesach, but it might have been owned by someone Jewish who did not make Mechiros Chamech. So for these reasons that I mentioned, these four reasons, um, it is obviously best to find alcoholic beverages which have Hashkach on them. That's obviously a best choice, because then someone is overseeing to make sure that all these cautious type issues are taken care of. Alternatively, um, there are lists of approved items, like that the CRC has, um, of approved items, which um, that would tell, that you can know, that means someone who, who does understand these things and who has looked into these is able to tell you which one of these alcoholic beverages are or are not acceptable.